Welcome to the Flannery Podcast, episode 66. The issue, the Supreme Court showdown over a woman's right of choice. Stay tuned. As I've said in earlier segments of this podcast, we open the newspaper on a Sunday, say, and we talk about it. That's one of the ways I've looked at uh, how we should handle this podcast. And there is an editorial in the Washington Post this week that I find particularly poignant. I think it's an indicator of whether we can trust the Supreme Court. I think it's an indicator of whether or not the court is going to be faithful to the law and to follow precedent. But let me get right to it. The heading of the editorial is Ideological Victory or Credibility. And the case they're discussing is Dobbs against Jackson Women's Health Organization. And it's concerned with Mississippi's severe 2018 abortion law. Now, the court took the case on to consider. It would consider, quoting from the editorial, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. Now, presently under Roe v. Wade, if the fetus is pre-viable, then an abortion is permissible. And that is true through the 24th week. But this proposal out of Mississippi provides that after 15 weeks, no abortion may be permitted. Now, the editorial says yes, explicitly and definitively, in an unbroken line of decisions over the last 50 years, this Supreme Court has held that the Constitution guarantees each person the right to decide whether to continue a pre-viability pregnancy. The only abortion clinic in Mississippi wrote, yet Mississippi passed a law banning abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, months prior to viability. Following Roe v. Wade, the Washington Post says, the 1992 Planned Parenthood against Casey ruling declared the states may not place undue burdens on women seeking abortions before their fetuses are viable. Banning abortions at 15 weeks when viability comes at 23 or 24 weeks is a bald-faced violation of this principle. And the editorial goes on. Now, in today's Washington Post, there's another story, and it's about Texas. And this argument is not before the Supreme Court, but the Texas legislators pass a six-week abortion ban, long, longer before when a fetus is viable. And here's a quote from one of the state senators. Once the heartbeat is detected, that life is protected, said State Rep. Shelby Slauson, Republican, the bill's sponsor. Other legislators cheered and leaped to their feet. This is despicable. But I thought we should go back a little bit because this is going to be before us and we should all be on the same page about what it means. And there's some logic, common sense, law, political chicanery, and disastrous outcomes should they challenge Roe v. Wade and change the law. Now, we've spoken about 
Trump's abuse of power when nominating a justice to serve his personal agenda on the court in violation of due process. In the case of uh, Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, we were concerned with whether or not they would separate church from state. It's ironic that Trump, an unbeliever, an amoral man, supported religious initiatives that sought to establish religion in violation of the Constitution. We should consider what was not discussed on the Hill during the nomination of Judge Barrett, who plainly sought to supplant the law and precedent, and particularly Roe v. Wade, and to replace it with religious dogma from her cultish faith. And when I use the term cult, this was a term that was applied to her objectively and accurately. In the case of Roe v. Wade, the most obvious illustration of the religious belief that Barrett would supplant for law is her Roman Catholic religious belief and article of faith that a zygote is a person and that as a person, a fecundated ovum may override the prerogatives of the pregnant mother. She is welcome to her personal religious beliefs, but the separation of church and state means she may not impose it on others. She may not impose it on other women. We've witnessed an erosion of the plain meaning of the words found in the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, prohibiting any government, federal, state, or local, from establishing a religion. The Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom was a statement about both freedom of conscience and the principle of separation of church and state. It was written by no less than Thomas Jefferson, passed by the General Assembly on January 16, 1786. It was the forerunner of the First Amendment protections for religious freedom. Divided into three paragraphs, the statute is rooted in Jefferson's philosophy. It could be passed in Virginia because dissenting sects, particularly Baptists, Presbyterians, and Methodists, had petitioned strongly during the preceding decade for religious liberty, including the separation of church and state. Congress passed the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, originally authored by Thomas Jefferson. His act inspired and shaped the guarantees of religious liberty eventually found in the First Amendment. Now, the text of the 1786 Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom gives great insight into our nation's First Amendment right. It reads, and I quote, No man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinion in matters of religion. And that same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. Isn't it ironic and disappointed that we refer only to man, because woman then was a chattel, didn't have the rights that a man had, didn't get those rights until long after slaves became citizens and had the right to vote. Now, in short, this act, aside from the limitation to man, affirm what we should recognize in every era, the right to practice any faith or to have no faith as a foundational freedom for all Americans. The right is also behind what Jefferson meant when he spoke of a wall of separation between the church and the state. 
And that famous phrase that we hear all the time and debate its significance and wonder what it means came in an 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut. The Baptists were worried about the freedom to practice their faith, writing to Jefferson that, quote, what religious privileges we enjoy, we enjoy as favors granted and not as inalienable rights, which is inconsistent with the rights of freemen. Jefferson wrote back that religious liberty, free from state tampering, would be a key part of the American vision. The Constitution, he wrote, would restore to man all his natural rights. In this same letter, Jefferson explained the intent of the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment to the Constitution, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This, he said, built a, quote, wall of separation of church and state. Jefferson wasn't suggesting that religious people or religious motivation should be exiled from public debate. As a matter of fact, the letter was from a religious people appealing to an elected official for their rights, an elected official who, by the way, attended church services during his administration inside the United States Capitol. In its day, a constitutional prohibition that the state would not establish or restrain personal faith was truly revolutionary. Unlike many places in the world, our government is not prohibited from referencing or accommodating religion, nor is the government compelled to scrub, scrub all religious references from the public square. Rather, the First Amendment ensures both that the government doesn't show preference to a certain religion and that the government doesn't take away an individual's ability to exercise religion. In other words, the church should not rule over the state and the state cannot rule over the church. It was 2014 the Supreme Court held in town of Greece against Galloway that, quote, it is an elemental First Amendment principle that government may not coerce its citizens to support or participate in any religion or its exercise. In town of Greece, the court was clear that the government cannot coerce someone to participate in a particular religion. Presumably, that means a particular item of faith. For example, that conception means personhood. Wrong. That conception means there's this separate entity that has rights, even pre-viability, even though one can't detect when this happens. Before he died, Thomas Jefferson left instructions that in his grave's epitaph, he wished to be remembered for three things, one of them being the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. Now, the primary test used to evaluate claims under the Establishment Clause is known as the tripartite test, often referred to as the Lemon Test, name of the case. Under this test, the law, one, must have a secular purpose. Two, must have a primary effect that neither advances nor inhibits religion. And three, must not lead to excessive entanglement with religion. One application of the Lemon Test focuses on whether the government has endorsed religion, say this principle of life begins at conception. The government is prohibited from making adherence to a religion relevant in any way to a person standing in the political community. But isn't that what is happening when a Judge Barrett or Associate Justices Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Thomas, or Alito 
are doing what they're doing, when they embrace as a fundamental principle what is an article of faith, their faith, their religious belief that life begins at conception, rather than following the law and medical science that rebuts that article of religious faith? This application of the lemon test forbids, quote, government endorsement or disapproval of religion, noting that endorsement sends a message to non-adherents that they are outsiders and an accompanying message to adherents that they are insiders, favored members of the political community. Disapproval sends the opposite message. This has a special meaning when the article of religious faith divides a woman from her right to be let alone. This is a constitutional right. This is a right that Justice Douglas first described. Another application of the Lemon Test focuses on neutrality as the governing principle in Establishment Clause challenges. Under this interpretation, the essential element in evaluating cha uh, challenges under the Lemon Test is whether or not the government act as neutral between religions and between religion and non-religion. Is the government neutral when it espouses as Christian faith or natural law the fiction, the religious fiction, the aspect of faith that a fertilized egg is a person. In addition to the lemon test, the court has used two other tests to evaluate establishment clause claims. The coercion test forbids the government from acting in a way that may coerce support or participation in religious practices. You know, some may remember and certainly have read about how when JFK ran for president, Former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, quote, criticized Senator Kennedy's ability to separate church and state matters completely. Kennedy explained that he believed in an America that promoted brotherhood. He continued, that is the kind of America which I believe, and it represents the kind of presidency in which I believe. A great office that must neither be humbled by making it the instrument of any one religious group, nor tarnished by arbitrarily withholding its occupancy from the members of any one religious group. I believe in a president whose religious views are his own private affair, neither imposed by him upon the nation or imposed by the nation upon him as a condition to holding that office. Kennedy didn't believe that the president should impose his religious views upon the nation, but that's precisely what this last administration did with the nomination of Judge Barrett and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, and what she agreed to perform by her tacit approval to play dumb to Trump's decision to promote her. Judge Barrett, as the best and last example of the triumvirate of judges who seem prepared to ignore precedent as part of their contract, Judge Barrett seeks to impose a religious view that has no medical nor scientific correspondence, is based entirely on an article of the Roman Catholic faith that conception is the beginning of life and of personhood, no matter that this is not the law, does not make sense, is not medically true, nor even is it inevitable that conception will result in a birth, a real person born. Trump chose Judge Barrett because she made it clear that Roe v. Wade was a lesser precedent. And I'm saying this because it's in her writings. It's what she said. It's what she believes. She believes there are super precedents. Roe v. Wade is not a super precedent. It's an artificial division that Judge Barrett referenced in an article she wrote about how worthy is a precedent to avoid being overturned. So there you see the machineries in place by what she's written in the past 
what everyone knew when they approved her for the Supreme Court, that Roe v. Wade, that others have said they would follow as precedent, she doesn't think is a super precedent, and she can overcome it. She would overrule the non-super precedents that are Griswold against Connecticut about birth control, and that's where the right of choice came into play, the right of privacy, the right to be let alone, that a married couple should be able to take uh, an, an oral con uh, contraceptive pill. And then we also have her in the same position about Roe v. Wade involving abortion. During her testimony, she said she was good with Brown against Board of Education, but wouldn't say the same about Griswold or Roe v. Wade. And thus did she say, by omission, what she intended or held in reserve that she could do. Trump himself told us that's why she was nominated. You know, uh, Jack Kennedy also said when he was a candidate to prove that he would not be uh, a papist, he would not be subject to a church's direction. He says, I wouldn't look with favor upon a president working to subvert the First Amendment's guarantees of religious liberty, nor would our system of checks and balances permit him to do so. And neither do I look with favor upon those who would work to subvert Article Six of the Constitution by requiring a religious test, even by indirection, for if, if they disagree with that safeguard, they should be out openly working to repeal it. One senator said that the Senate couldn't force a religious test on her, on Barrett, misapprehending what Article VI is all about. Judge Barrett is precisely what concerns Article VI. She has a religious test that she subscribes to. It overwhelms every other aspect of her character, including that part of her as a judge and a lawyer. The Republican caucus wants her as a Catholic who will put her belief ahead of the law. There are Catholics and other persons of faith who can put aside their faith and follow the law. We've seen them. They number. JFK was one of those. Judge Barrett is not that person. Article 6 of the Constitution provides that, quote, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. What was the entire clearance process by which Barrett became a nominee to the Supreme Court? that a religious test was applied in the sense that the article of faith that is necessary to believe to overturn Roe v. Wade must be in place. It is in place in Kavanaugh. It is in place in Gorsuch. It is in place in Barrett. The Federalist Society put Judge Barrett on the list because of her religion and that she would follow through on her faith, opposing abortion for religious reasons, following her Roman Catholic faith, disregarding her oath should she be concerned, should she be confirmed, and she was. So her faith, by the way she came to the Supreme Court in her mind, may supplant the law, if this is a lesser precedent. So we are going to find out what the Supreme Court is made of. When this decision is argued and when it becomes a decision of the court what to do, will they change the pre-viability standard so clearly uh, in contradiction of Roe v. Wade. And if they do, we find out that the Supreme Court has legitimately lost the trust of American citizens. Because you shouldn't be on the court if you've made a contract to overturn a law when you can't do it legally and lawfully and consistent with precedent. 
but that is what's at stake. So we're going to find out, in the case of Dobbs against Jackson Women's Health Organization, what the Supreme Court is made of. And we'll learn more if anyone should propose that six weeks, the Texas standard for which they cheered and jeered, will find its way to the Supreme Court. So individual rights and liberties are at stake, and this is the first clear test of Roe v. Wade that we have because it is so plainly clear it shouldn't be before the court at, at all. So with that, uh, that's something to chew on. Uh, I hope that uh, I treated this issue delicately enough because I understand how much it means to people as an individual article of faith. But I never believed it when I was a practicing Roman Catholic because I also think of myself as a person who regards science and subtlety and these propositions I've been discussing with you is important long before I decided to become a lawyer. So uh, have a good week and I'll be back next week and uh, subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you, bye bye.